Well, I'm so glad you're here tuning in to watch and to hear about this glorious news. Uh, not just our church, Grace Rancho, but thousands of churches and millions of Christians all around the globe this morning are worshiping Jesus Christ because they believe that he actually, physically, historically rose from the dead, and they believe that that has groundbreaking and eternal ramifications for humanity. Uh, this is uh, not just something we believe. This is something that all Christians believe and have believed since the event itself, since, since it happened all those years ago. We are saying this morning that Jesus actually died on a Roman cross, that he was actually buried in a tomb, that he actually came back to life physically, bodily, in space and in time, in history, that he is God incarnate and that he saves people from their sins when people trust in him for salvation. That's what we and thousands of others are proclaiming this morning. And I want to ask you, uh, many people are, are tuning in to these live streams, and so you might not be a Christian, and you might be tuning in because someone sent you this link, and I am so glad you're here, and you're welcome to come to our church or any church near you anytime, but I want to ask you the question, what do you think about Jesus? Uh, is he still dead? Did he really rise from the dead? Is he just like every other person buried somewhere in a tomb? It really is a monumental question. You can't answer that neutrally. I have a friend who said that if he would be convinced, he, this friend wasn't a Christian, he said if, if he could become convinced that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, bodily, actually, physically, in history, rose from the dead, that he would become a Christian. It was that monumental. He would change his life. He would change his mindset because that act of resurrecting from the dead would have been validation that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. It would have validated all his claims. That's the right mindset to have. If Jesus did rise from the dead, it changes everything. And as the Apostle Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we're all still in our sins. So this is of massive importance that if Jesus didn't rise, if he's still in a tomb somewhere, uh, Christians are saying we're all still stuck in our sins. We've been proclaiming this as Christians, um, not only on Easter Sunday, resurrection morning, but every Sunday that Jesus conquered death, that he is alive, and we believe there's good reason to believe it. We believe there's, there's good reason to believe that Jesus is in fact alive. And if you've never really thought about the reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I hope this morning can be really helpful for you. Here's what we want to do. We want to give you some reasons to believe the resurrection. If you're already a Christian, you might have heard these before, and these might help you understand why it's so, uh, why we believe this so strongly, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But if you're not a Christian, I want to show you some lines of evidence that make it very reasonable to believe that this is actual history that this is an indisputable fact of history that we can rest our eternal souls on. 
So here's some lines of evidence. We're going to give you four lines of evidence, four reasons that we must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with this statement. Number one, the historical accounts all speak of an empty tomb. Uh, the historical accounts, the earliest ones, speak of an empty tomb. Uh, we have here in the New Testament four writers. Uh, you know them and we know them. They've been passed down throughout, uh, from history as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, you know those names because of the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, just to give you a quick rundown, was a tax collector. He also went by the name uh, Levi. Mark uh, was uh, a friend of uh, the apostles and a close friend of the apostle Peter. And Mark and Peter uh, worked together to get down the gospel of Mark. So Mark wrote down a lot of Peter's eyewitness account. I uh, Peter was right there with Jesus in a lot of his earthly ministry. Luke was a doctor, highly educated. He was a historian and a researcher, and he wrote much of the New Testament. Luke and Acts were written um, by the, uh, the, the man Luke, the doctor Luke. And John, who was also a close friend of Jesus, a beloved partner of Jesus, really near to Jesus. And all four of these men wrote down their accounts of Jesus. And what's interesting about all these accounts is they include uh, the evidence, the statement, the historical description of the reality that when the tomb was discovered, it was empty. When they went to the tomb on that resurrection morning all those days ago, they all had seen Jesus die. Uh, they all had known that he was crucified. And on that third day, the Sunday after that Good Friday, they go to the tomb and the tomb is empty. Matthew, uh, writing 20 to 40 years after Jesus' death, records it like this. Speaking of some women that went to the tomb, uh, the women saw an angel. The angel spoke to them and said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Mark records something very similar. At the very end of Mark's account, he describes the same women coming to the tomb. They see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white. That's the angel. And the angel said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And there it is, an empty tomb. Luke is writing later. He's a historian. He's a competent researcher. And in his account, he describes the same thing. They woke up. It was early dawn. They went to the tomb. Uh, these women were taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. Verse 6 is the, the same statement from the angels. He's not here. John Writing again has the same idea. The women come, they see the tomb empty, but then they go get Peter and John. Peter and John race to the tomb, and they go in, and again, what do they see? It's empty. And when you read these accounts, and if you never have read these accounts, I would encourage you to go do that. When you read these accounts, you realize these are not fantastical uh, stories, and these are not wild-eyed, uneducated, uneducated lunatics, maniacs writing this stuff down like some cult leaders trying to get people to follow them. They're simply writing history. In fact, they include details that would have discredited their account, except for the fact that they were true. 
Uh, all of these uh, references I just gave you from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John state that the first people to see the empty tomb, you know who they were? They were women. Now, in those days, that would have been something that you wouldn't have wanted to include in your historical account if you're trying to prove that Jesus rose from the dead because in a Jewish court of law, women did not have any credibility to testify. They wouldn't let him do it. And so if these writers would have been trying to present something that was fantastical or they were trying to make something up that Jesus had risen from the dead, you know what they would have done? They would have left out the part that the women were the first ones to actually see the empty tomb. But they include that because they're not trying to impress anyone. They're not trying to convince except for the fact they're just trying to state what actually happened. This is such an indisputable fact that there are many scholars, many people who believe that the tomb was empty even if they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is actually what happened in the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the guards and uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of those days didn't want Jesus to be known. They didn't want his message to be spread. And when the tomb was found to be empty in Matthew chapter 28, verse 13, they come up with a plan to explain it away. They say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. They were absolute, uh, people were absolutely convinced that the tomb was empty and the disciples themselves were absolutely convinced that Jesus rose from the dead because the tomb was empty. In fact, many non-Christians believe that the tomb was empty. They don't say that Jesus rose from the dead, but they do believe the tomb was empty. The historical accounts say the tomb was empty. Muslims claim that Jesus didn't actually die when he was on the cross, and that's how he would have escaped the tomb. Uh, some other Muslims say that after he uh, supposedly looked like he was dead, he wasn't actually dead, and then he fled to India uh, shortly after his escape from the tomb. In the 19th century, Karl Bard and Karl Venturini claimed that Jesus didn't actually die from the, resur or from the crucifixion, but he merely fainted, and he had been given some sort of drug that made him only appear to die. Donovan Joyce wrote a book called The Jesus Scroll that claimed that perhaps Jesus survived the crucifixion. In 1982, a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail presents an entirely different theory. It claims that Jesus survived the crucifixion, and even they, uh, saying in their conclusion, uh, we cannot and still cannot prove the accuracy of our conclusion, they were thinking that he maybe didn't actually die. What they all agree upon is that the tomb was empty, but they're not willing to concede that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not a believer, I would encourage you to have an open mind and go back and read the accounts. They're, they're, they're not mystical, fantastical stories made up just to try to wow people. They're historical. They're historical. Would you go read them with an open mind? If, that, if, if you would, you might end up being like Lee Strobel or, or Frank Morrison. Lee Strobel was a, a an investigative journalist who went out to disprove the resurrection and ended up becoming a Christian. Frank Morrison, in the same way, in the 1920s, he, he wanted to prove that the resurrection was a myth. And he couldn't answer the question, how was the tomb empty? Who moved the stone? And he too ended up becoming a Christian. 
So the historical evidence points to the reality of an empty tomb. Let's look at the second line of evidence that points us to the fact that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Secondly, his closest friends all believed he was alive. You might not be convinced by the empty tomb. You might not be convinced by that. A lot of people will admit the tomb was empty, but they won't admit that he rose from the dead. So let's, let me give you an example of kind of what's going on here. Imagine this. Imagine you're coming to our church one Sunday, and you get this rumor in your mind uh, that you've heard from some people that Eric's not going to be preaching that morning. So you're thinking, oh, I wonder who's going to be preaching. Eric's not going to be preaching. And you pull into the parking lot, and the first thing you see is my car sitting there normally in its place. You go, huh, I thought he wasn't preaching this morning. And then you walk in through the front door and you go into my office and there is my my office doors open and the lights on and my laptop's open and my study materials are all there, but I'm not there. It's like, huh, it's more evidence that he might be here even though I can't see him. Hmm, interesting. You look at the bulletin and the bulletin says that the preacher for the day is Eric Durso and you think, okay, well, maybe he is in fact here. But you wonder why you heard that rumor. Now, all of that is mounting evidence, but it also could be explained away by other things. You could, maybe someone says, well, Eric's wife drove his car to uh, the church, or maybe you could say that the bulletin was mistaken, or someone else was using his desk, and you could explain away some of that evidence, but imagine this. Imagine you're at the church, and you're looking at all this evidence, and in addition to the things you're seeing, you also hear a bunch of people that you know, that you trust, that really value being honest Uh, the earnest people, they're not trying to deceive anyone. And imagine they come to you and say, oh, no, yeah, I saw Eric. He's here. I saw him. He's here. Yes, he's preparing to preach. Now, that would be even more evidence to help you understand that I, in fact, am here. I'm going to preach a sermon. Now, this is similar to what happened. We're saying here that Jesus's closest friends believed and were convinced that he was alive. They were absolutely convinced that he was alive. The Apostle Paul, listen to this. We read it in the the time before the sermon in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. This is written about 20 or so years after the resurrection. And Paul writes this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than, get this, 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the resurrected Christ revealed himself to the apostles, yes, to the disciples, yes, and to more than 500 people at once. And those people that he was talking about, many of them, most of them, were still alive. They all were convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. And Paul writing this letter Uh, he could have sent this letter, and if anyone wanted to disprove the resurrection of the dead, any one of the people he's mentioning here could have said, oh, wait a second, I, I don't believe it. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But all these people were absolutely convinced that he, in fact, had risen from the dead. In fact, consider this. Do you know where Jesus was crucified? He was crucified right outside Jerusalem. 
That's where he went to die. They took him outside Jerusalem to kill him. Do you know where the epicenter of the belief in the resurrection of Jesus began? Same place, Jerusalem. How do you explain that? How do you explain that reality that the people who doubted Jesus' claims, who wanted him dead, the very same city where the crowds yelled for him to be crucified is also the city, few, not long after his death, the same city is crying out that this is the man who rose from the dead. The, 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 where, the, where did the church begin? In Jerusalem. Why? because they became convinced that the one they killed was now alive. They, they couldn't disprove the compelling and indisputable fact of the resurrection. Think about this, the Jews, the ones who uh, were, they were they're, they're monotheists. That means they believed fervently in one God. They had been taught that from childhood. They had been raised on the Old Testament scriptures. They were absolutely convinced that there was one God. What happens after the resurrection? Suddenly, you have thousands of monotheistic Jews worshiping Jesus Christ. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? They would not have worshiped a man unless they were convinced he was God. And they would not be convinced he was God unless he rose from the dead. His closest friends who were filled with despair after watching him die, became some of the boldest, uh, most eager and fervent evangelists, willing even to die. They weren't just devoted to his teachings. They worshiped him as God. The same, listen, the same honor that they gave to the one true God that they had always believed in, they now gave to Jesus Christ. Is it likely that they just changed overnight for no reason? I know of a agnostic who, as a historian, began to study the beginnings of the church. And he went back to try to figure out how the Christian church got started. In his studies, he became convinced that there was no way that thousands of monotheistic Jews would suddenly, within a, such a short span of time, be worshiping a man they called Jesus Christ, their Messiah. There was no explanation for it, except if it was true that Jesus rose from the dead. And that man became a Christian because he faced the reality that this historical event was, in fact, validated by the historical reality of the Christian church growing right in the very place where Jesus died. Uh, historians say that when an event is uh, validated by independent witnesses, if they can get two independent sources that account for the same event, they've discovered something that's historically verifiable. You know what? There are six lines of independent sources that claim that the tomb was empty and that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. All his friends believed that he had done it. His closest 
committed partners in ministry believe that he rose from the dead. Here's our third line of reasoning why it's reasonable and likely and indisputable, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. It is this, that his worst opponent became convinced that he was alive. Uh, Not only did people who were devoted to him uh, start worshiping him after his resurrection, there were those that were mocking him and against him and did not want anything to do with him that suddenly became radically transformed once they heard about and experienced the resurrection. The most famous is, of course, uh, who we know as the Apostle Paul. Before he was called Paul, he was called Saul, and he was the enemy of the church. The early church was his bullseye. It was the target of his life that he wanted to stamp it out. He was a highly educated man. He was being educated by uh, a prominent and prestigious rabbi called Gamaliel in the first century. His own testimony, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's his own description of himself that he was advancing in Judaism, that he was pursuing the truth that he, or the, what he thought to be true. The historian Luke in the book of Acts says that Saul was assaulting the church, attacking the church, trying to shut down the church, but he records something that happened in history. He records what happened to Saul that Saul had this encounter with the resurrected Christ and it changed everything. Jesus forgave this man's sins. Jesus transformed this man's heart. Jesus gave him a new mission and Saul now began to be called Paul and he became the most fervent servant of the church, the early church and early Christianity. Now let's, let's go back to that illustration that I was using earlier about the rumor that I wasn't preaching that Sunday morning. So you come in and you see the car, and you see the bulletin, and you see the desk, and all of that's kind of pointing to evidence that I might be here, even though you haven't seen me yet. And then you hear some of the friends that you know and trust start saying, no, he's here. We saw him. We saw him with our own eyes. He's here. And maybe you don't even believe that, but then imagine this. Imagine someone comes up to you, and he says, you know what? I was the one. I was one of these people who was spreading the rumor that Jesus was dead, and he didn't rise from the dead. I was part of the bad, I, I was the, the group spreading that lie. I was starting that rumor that, that Eric's not going to be here. Imagine him saying, I'm wrong. He's here. I saw him. I know he's here. Please forgive me for saying that which was wrong. Please forgive me for spreading lies. I want you to know, and I want everyone to know, he is actually here, this is exactly what's happening with Paul. Paul is one who was convinced at one point in his life that Jesus had not risen from the dead, and then he became so radically transformed that he became convinced that he was risen from the dead, and he spent the rest of his life trying to convince others to recognize the resurrection of the dead. Paul, read him. If, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I would encourage you then to go right into to Paul's writings. If you read Paul, he's, he's not a lunatic either. He's not some maniac. In fact, his letter to the Romans has been used in courts of law as a demonstration, as an example of airtight logic. 
He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. In fact, he goes on to become a martyr for the cause that he believes in. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, he says this, but in fact, in fact, this is a fact, a historical, verifiable fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. Here it is, another fervent monotheistic Jew who would have never worshipped a man is suddenly, with everything in him, worshiping Jesus Christ and wants the whole world to know that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. And so he goes on, and so many of his letters letters are explaining what Jesus did. He goes on to explain, Paul writes that Jesus' death was to pay for sin's penalty because we all have sinned against God and that Jesus' resurrection is to validate his claims that he is, in fact, the Son of God and he has the authority to forgive sins. Paul believed this. And so he wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25, He says, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what Paul wrote, and that's what Paul came to understand, that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification, for our salvation, that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, who is alive right now, they will be forgiven. Now let's come to a fourth line of evidence why we believe that Jesus is alive right now. This Sunday, this, this Sunday, we believe that he's alive right now, and here's our fourth reason. He has been changing lives for thousands of years. Let's go back to that analogy. Uh, You haven't believed that I'm preaching, and so you go into my office. It looks like I might have been there, but you're not quite sure. And people who you know and you trust are saying, no, he was here, I saw him. And then that person who was spreading the rumor comes and he says, I was wrong. I was spreading a rumor that was false. Please forgive me. No, he is here. And imagine you're outside in the parking lot and you're thinking to yourself, well, could it be true? Is he or is he not? And then imagine suddenly the back doors of the church are open, swung open, and out come all these people and they're saying, I heard the sermon. I heard the sermon. I saw him up there preaching and that sermon has impacted my life. It has touched my life. And I am now wanting to change as a result of what was said in that sermon. Now suddenly you have more evidence, you have the evidence of thousands or actually millions of people who are saying it is true. No, he did rise from the dead because of what has happened in me and there's no other explanation for what has happened in my life except that there is a risen Savior who can change and transform lives. Jesus has been changing lives for thousands of years. Look back through the ages. Millions of people who could not change themselves and could not save themselves, who were lost and dead in their sin and and could not do anything about it, they're all now saying, I'm transformed, I'm forgiven, I'm changed, I'm a new man, I'm a new woman. I know he's alive because he's changed my heart, he's changed my mind, he's changed my life, he saved my marriage, he freed me from addiction, he has made me his own child. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was an enemy, but now I'm his friend. People have been saying that 
for generations believing the factual historical reality that Jesus is alive and willing and able to save and forgive and transform. Personally, I've seen this with my own eyes. I've seen people who were so committed to their own lives, their own ambitions, living for themselves, that they were running over people, pursuing their own selfish desires, marriages falling apart, and then they get a hold of what the gospel is. They get an encounter with the resurrected Christ through his word. They hear about who he is and what he did. And all those facts are are, uh, one thing, but suddenly the reality of his living and resurrected and glorious power strikes them, and they become humbled, realizing that they're sinners. And they become amazed that Jesus would die and rise for them, and their lives are transformed. Hearts changed, minds changed, marriage saved going from a foul mouth to a mouth that only wants to tell others about Jesus, going from inward anger to outward love, an explosive temper replaced with a gentle and tender countenance. Jesus has been changing lives. I've seen it. I've seen it again and again and again, and I'm not alone. I've seen it Many have seen it. It's been happening throughout all the ages, and the ones that I've seen are just raindrops in the rushing river of the great stream of redeemed sinners. All over the globe, in fact, all over the globe, this morning, Jesus Christ is being worshipped by all kinds of different people, old and young, all people from different nations, all people of different ethnicities. Jesus right now is being worshipped in all kinds of different languages. Why? Because they are convinced that he rose from the dead. The movement that happened when Jesus rose from the dead is still with us and going strong today. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The apostles were convinced he was alive. His worst enemies changed their minds, and lives all throughout the ages have been giving their allegiance to the resurrected king. So that Philip Schaff, a a historian, he says this, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money in arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without, elo- without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life that were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnish more themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern 
times. There is no man like Jesus Christ. He is not just like another man. He does not belong in the same category as a Moses or an Alexander or a Caesar or a Muhammad. He is in a category of his own because he is God incarnate who came to live a life you couldn't live and to die on the cross in your place and to be raised from the dead. And he is alive right now. And all over the globe, people are saying it is resounding that Jesus is alive and everyone who comes to him will be totally forgiven of their sins, saved by God, saved from the wrath that we've deserved and forgiven and welcomed into the adopted family of God. If Jesus is alive, then what? I'm going to give you four, four then what's. If Jesus is alive, then what? Here's one. If Jesus is alive, then you can be reconciled to God. A lot of people have lived certain ways, and they've come to realize that the way they've lived is not only self-destructive, it's offensive to God, and they come to the point, I've heard uh, many people say this, that they need to get right with God. You know, the reality is that you can't do anything yourself to get right with God. The only way for one to be made right with God is for them to come to Jesus Christ. Listen, for you to be made right with God, you can't do anything, you can't earn anything, you can't work hard enough, you can't change anything about yourself. It's not turning over a new leaf. Listen, for you to be made right with God, you have to realize that Jesus has already done everything for you to be reconciled to him. That's what his death on the cross means, and that's what his resurrection means. Now, all you have to do is believe it. Turn from whatever else you're trusting in and trust in the risen Savior, and you are reconciled to God. And so God is your father. Christ is your brother. The church is your new family. You, right now, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much you've sinned, there is no sin so deep, but Christ is deeper still. And he will forgive all your sins and reconcile to himself. And that's our second one. If Jesus is alive, you can have all your sins forgiven. Not some of them, not part of them, not just the little sins, not just the external sins, all your sins of your past, all your sins of your presence, and all the sins that you'll ever commit into the future, all of those sins will be washed away by the blood of Christ. His resurrection proves the reality that he has the power and authority to forgive your sins. That's what he did on the cross is he took them upon himself so that you could be forgiven. He offers you forgiveness of sins that anyone who trusts in him, looks at him with eyes of faith, will be forgiven. Third, if Jesus is alive, you can escape death. The topic of death is swirling all around us right now. We are fighting against, against death with everything we've got right now. And maybe some of us are afraid of facing death. Worried about what might happen at your next doctor's appointment. Scared at what might happen when you're in those final moments. But this is the hope of Easter. This is, this is why it's actually really helpful for us that this season all the kind of frilly sentimentalities of Easter are gone. We can't do the normal Easter egg hunts and the pastels and the bunnies. That's all stripped away. And what we're faced to look at right now is, is we're looking at Jesus who really died on Friday and then conquered death 
on Sunday. We're looking at the resurrected Christ who conquered death. Listen, and the Bible says that you, in your, as you put your faith in Christ, you too will conquer death as well. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And he is a preview and a promise to all those who trust in Christ that they will be raised from the dead as well. You will be reconciled to God. You can have all your sins forgiven. You can escape death. And lastly, if Jesus is alive, you can trust him right now. Right now, you can trust Jesus because he is alive. This is not some moral philosophy. This isn't some system of ethics. We're talking about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're talking about a living person. Your hope is not in a system. Your hope is not in a theology. Your hope is certainly not in yourself. Your hope is in a person who conquered death who's alive right now, who is willing and able to save you. Acts 17.30 says, the, time, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, listen to this, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the promise that Jesus is a returning judge. And right now, before we all face judgment, we have the opportunity to turn from whatever we're trusting in and to bank our lives on the grace of Jesus Christ, that he is risen, that we can trust him, that he will forgive us. You can change your mind, change your heart, and cast yourself at the foot of the cross at the resurrected Christ. Don't delay. Come to him now. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Now, if you're a doubter or a skeptic, don't you wish this is true? Well, you don't have to wish. You don't have to wish. This happened in history, and your sins really can be forgiven. Your life can be transformed. You can be reconciled to God. And this is why this is the best news you'll ever hear in all your life. And that's why all over the globe right now, Christians are shouting glory to God because he died and rose for us. So come. Come sinners, come skeptics, come doubters, come wanderers, come backsliders. Come. He's risen. He's alive. He will receive you with his loving embrace when you come to him by faith. Pray. So, Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself now in the saving of sinners. We pray that if anyone's out there who wants to receive you, I pray that they would humble themselves, that they would turn from any false hope, they would cast themselves upon your mercy. And as they do that, they would feel the joy and assurance of knowing they are forgiven, saved, reconciled, adopted, 
and loved eternally. So Lord, do your mighty work of salvation now. Thank you for dying and conquering death for us that we might live. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.